Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Listen, okay, I used to live. I used to live like three blocks away from there, bro. You're kind of copying me. I'm, I'm jacking your swag. Yeah. That I don't AG know. If, I don't know if I'd call anything that I had going on at that point in my life swag per se, but <laughs> working a sales AG. job that sucks. Now it's sweat. It's swag. swag. It's ag without the swag. Sorry, it's swag without ag. It's just swa. Is that yeah. is that a good one? Uh, AG, I, would, I would say that it is. It is zero letters because there was no parts of swag being fulfilled by my life situations. You're, hmm. you're fresh out of college, working in sales, making a cool thirty-eight k a year. <laughs> Where, is, yeah. this, is this before or after you were a security guard? I was outside of college. I did not work as a security guard at the U of M outside of college. That was my college job. Oh, so it was after. You could have just answered with one word. I actually worked a, a number of similar-ish jobs. I also worked as a front desk kind of security guard person for my one of the apartments I lived in. That was yeah. a great job. $15 an hour back then, which of course wasn't that long ago because I'm still very young and youthful, but $15 an hour, um, I would read a book every shift, Damn, eight hours, and I didn't, I literally would do nothing, and so I would read a book. Damn, brother. Those were the yep. days. Uh, speaking of the past, speaking of uh, the present, and speaking of the youth and the future, uh, thank you so much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast. Where it's the table's a little less round, but uh, three of us are in person. You're going to hear some uh, technical and audio differences from our normal episodes. But uh, worry not. We're still going to have a hell of a discussion out of this one. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Trilon Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Uh, get tickets and other cool ways to support the Trilon there. I'm trying to do a communal thing where I'm looking at the folks I'm with in the room the way I would normally look at their video on screen in Zencaster. I don't know if it's working. Aaron, how's how's this panning out for you? You're the the the, the sole um, six hundred miles away guy. Um, it is rare to to be the it is rare for me to be the one person as the person in Chicago to actually have an upper hand on my co-hosts who all like get to see the movie in the theaters and mm-hmm. probably talk about it before recording and whatnot. But now I have the upper hand as I'm not like crouched around a table uh, like you three oafs. You know what I mean? I don't know. This feels like a W from us. I'm, like- I'm, I'm living luxury. You guys are leaning over. You know, you each have like a beer on a table. One of those is going to spill before we're done. Look at me. I'm just yep. leaning back. Look at me. You look so alone. Put, put my feet up. <laughs> Wearing a sweatshirt that says enough. That says everything. That no, it's. Uh, is it Jason? Do you black? get this? <laughs> oh, sorry. Enough it's, already. It's the, bla- it's the black flag shirt, but it says enough already instead of black flag. It's a bomb music industry T-shirt. Yeah, pretty cute. Pretty cute. Uh, thank you so much for listening. To find us on Twitter, try the podcast. Uh, my name is Jason Nafnis. Uh, there's been a tragic podcasting accident, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendo. That's funny because I'm here to make this a decent place for people to pod. Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. My name is Aaron. I'm a Trilove's local Australia correspondent. Checking in for the day, you can find me on Blue Sky, I guess. Go find me on Blue Sky at uh, RB Please, A A R B Y P L S. Uh, I guess I kept that dumb username. It's on Blue Sky now. Hey, uh, a brand is a brand. Uh, we're welcome, excuse me, we're welcoming once more, welcoming once more. The hands is already working on me. I'm 0.25 of these in. Uh, Welcoming once more to the podcast, uh, good friend and frequent guest, Seth Zarati, who's going to introduce himself, he told me, in his best Australian accent, including his Twitter handle. Oi! Uh, one fair to be here again. Uh, I realize whenever I do an Australian accent, mm. sounds like I'm Liverpoolian. <laughs> uh, I think you're but, doing like a uh, New Zealand. It's the same. In, in America, it's the same place. Uh you can find me also on Blue Sky or Twitter at SN Zarati. I can drive. 
Thank you so much for joining. Uh, we have uh, to get into talking about the episode. Aaron needs to make this a quick one. He's got a, a he's clenching really hard to get this one <laughs> to get through this episode uh, quickly. Got so I'll let him get later. into his patented Aaron Grossman summary. Yes, we are talking about The Cars That Ate Paris, 1974 film directed by Peter Weir. Uh, the film is, along with uh, many other of Weir's films uh, from the beginning of his career, uh, considered a part of the Australian new wave genre. If you couldn't tell from the multiple Australia references, uh, the genre kind of, not genre, the, it's not a genre, the movement, let's say, uh, sprang up in the uh, kind of early 1970s due to a renewed uh a renewed amount of attention being paid to the Australian film industry, largely in turn uh, due to itself kind of an increase in government funding starting in the, the early 1970s. Uh, this film itself stars Terry Camilleri, a very Italian sounding name. Yeah, uh, I believe he's Maltese, uh, but let's not let's not measure close. holes or anything here. Let's just yes. say the name and move on. Terry Terry Camilleri as Alter uh, Arthur Waldo. Uh, he was a I don't know, relatively let's say kind of naive, maybe dumb young man uh, who gets into a car accident with his brother George while driving through the Australian town of Paris. George is killed, uh, but Arthur lives on and is looked after by the mayor of Paris, Len Kelly, played by John Melon. Uh, unknown to Arthur is that the um, the city of Paris almost entirely kind of exists due to the townsfolk purposefully causing fatal car accidents to uh, visitors uh, with most of the townsfolk benefiting in some way uh, from the accidents, whether it's from looting the cars, uh, the luggage, um, or kind of, you know, using the survivors for various medical experiments, uh, as in the case of the town surgeon. Uh, movie is very weird to summarize, but I hope that has been sufficient. I will also give a quick shout out to um, two blogs on the Trilons uh, kind of internet uh, blogs, Parisphere, two articles written there. Uh, the first was The Cars That Ate Paris and the Bone-Shaking Consequences of the Past by Chris uh, Ribatures. I hope I pronounced that last name correctly. Uh, and then Dude, Where's My Car? Car Culture Examined in uh, The Cars That Ate Paris by Matthew Lambert. Uh, I found both those articles quite good and quite uh, good at kind of digging into what this film was doing under the surface as well as kind of the the general maybe not total but kind of the the, the general uh kind of aims of a lot of the films in the australian new wave uh movement itself so that's can what we, i got can we assume aaron you've done a little bit more research can you assume that mad max <laughs> is part of this same new wave yes yes okay. mad it's max good. let me so the, the first mad max film uh I, I don't know how fresh you guys are out of the theaters for this one but first mad max obviously owes a lot to this film yes yes um, a strange amount yeah mad max was a 79 film uh george, george miller yeah was a director there is a director that that's kind of usually uh referenced to in regard to the australian new wave uh this film obviously came a, a, you know five years before that um but i think you can just in terms of, of, I think Mad Max is actually, and people have definitely written about this, but kind of an interesting film series. If you take a look at how that evolved, especially from the first film to first film to the second film to, I mean, certainly Thunderdome, but then also to Fury Road. I think that there is a, a let's say a notable difference between each of those films. Um, but the first Mad Max, I don't Have you seen the first Mad Max, Jason? I don't know. Oh, if yeah, yeah. I, I've seen all of the movies in the franchise. It's been a while since I saw the first one as it was my first exposure just before Fury Road released. But yeah, I've seen them. The, the first one is like maybe closer to not just to talk about Mad Max the entire time, but the first one is like closer to the cars that ate Paris than it is to any of the yeah. other Mad Max films. I, that was something that I was shocked and even kind of, I'll say I, I have the had the same kind of react, uh, reaction to Mad Max one that I did to to watching this film uh, uh, kind of earlier, where I think that my first reaction was like, you know, kind of maybe sort of middling, like, okay, that has moments in it. I think that there is, you know, I'm not going to say it's like maybe the deepest film of all time, but I think there's like stuff under the surface. There's even stuff on the surface. Um, but I think that there are little bits and pieces that, uh, maybe one might not detect due to maybe a distance from Australian culture and history and whatnot that kind of settles in after thinking about it a little mm -hmm. bit. I'd yeah. say. In the case of Mad Max specifically, there's just been an action manification of that character, especially since Fury Road and Thunderdome and stuff, but that sort of obscures a lot of what is going on in the first one. And I think to your point, it shares a lot more in common with the cars that ate Paris than it does with like maybe even 
in later films in the same series. But I wanted to get uh, the opinion of our guest about the reaction specifically you had to this movie. Uh, your first exposure to it as, I think, for most of us, right? Anybody see this one before? No, okay, no. So, Seth, what was your reaction to The Cars That Ate Paris? Live at the Trilon, back row, back row boys, hashtag. More like Peter Weird. <laughs> uh, There's the one-liner, but Yeah. Uh, no, I honestly was surprised by how funny it was. My only real Peter Weir experience before this was Witness, mm-hmm. which has like lighter comedic moments, but is relatively like a straightforward, you know, drama thriller uh, slice of life. Well, it, it mixes genres. This did yeah. the same thing, but like this had much more tongue in cheek humor than mm-hmm. I expected. And I figure a big part of that is like, commenting on australian you know culture um but yeah no I, I i definitely liked it and like aaron said there's a lot going on on the surface interested to see what's going on beneath the surface Ooh, wow. under the hood <laughs> cody can you take us under the hood you want to crack it there you want to pull a little lever from inside the car that pops the hood wow i would make a cracking sound but my canned margarita is already open gents um, no, uh, Aaron is a coward. This is the deepest movie of all time. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, um, I, I think doing, uh, the plumber and then this back to back, I, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about how, um, structurally there are a lot of similarities. The focus being on one person who's, uh, stuck in a, in a pretty tough situation. And it, the movie does a, a, a reasonable, like decent job of, fleshing out the the kind of both sidesism, um, even if it doesn't come to a conclusive, like this side is better than the other, but at least like giving um, some kind of societal context for like why we are where we are, why these people are the way they are. And then sort of give him uh, in this in the case of the cars that a Paris, give this guy, this, uh, this short King, uh, an opportunity to, you know, to, to leave once and for all, um, you know, fuck whatever else is going on in, in this town and these other people just like, you know what? I can drive, as as Seth said, um, and along the way, kind of punctuating this this odd dynamic with a lot of weird sensibilities, um, re- like very strange uh, rhythms uh, in like people's manner of speaking, some very odd cuts um, tonally, like seeing something very horrific and then cut to the countryside where it plays <laughs> some like generic 70s funk or like uh, it's either that or like some some nice like twinkly music that would kick off uh, an 80s sitcom or, or something like that. A lot of that going around. Um, but yeah. And then, and then finding select moments to, to shock you with you know, car crashes and blood and, and carnage. Um, yeah. So I don't know a, a lot to like here. Um, I guess I'm, I'm still working out how deep this actually is, mm-hmm. um, but there, there's stuff certainly, you know, permeating under the surface, whether or not it comes to a full boil and kind of, Remains to be seen. I don't know. Would yeah. you agree with that, Jason? I would agree in that I think the form it takes the, is like an incredibly abrasive. Uh, and I think this is sort of what everyone's going getting with uh, with uh, calling to mind the Australian new wave, very abrasive style of filmmaking where it is like the intro scene, which I had completely forgotten by the time that the movie's over, reads like a commercial um, in that there's, and just for audiences who may not have seen this movie recently, uh, a couple that is driving down the countryside in Australia, um, idyllic, uh, beautiful car. The dog in the back, they're buying a painting, they're getting gas um, and smoking uh, Admiral cigarettes or something and drinking a Coca-Cola. Just they're having they're the flashing time the life. brand very yes. clearly to the camera. Constantly flashing the brand. And uh, and that's why it reads like a commercial, you know, non-diegetic music and all that. And then suddenly they're careening off the uh, cliff and they're both clearly dead because the car is in pieces. Uh, and then hard cut, nothing, new story, completely different. Uh, and throughout the movie, it makes those choices to throw in. Um, this is where, uh, where Seth, you were talking about a marriage of genres and like a mixing of feeling at times. Uh, the plumber did this sometimes the, the previous movie we covered from Peter Weir, um, which was a television movie, but, uh, it does this thing where like, it'll either jar from scene to scene in terms of how it's, um, uh, like, I guess the excuse me, witness does the same thing, but like over the course of the movie where there's jokes and there's drama and there's action and there's horror and there's love. But in the, in the plumber, it's like scene to scene, just weird shit keeps happening and you keep feeling differently about it. And it's uh, maybe like within one scene, things go complete like a, a roller coaster of tone. And in this, it's like it 
decides each scene what it's going to what the movie is going to be like uh and i think that makes it like uh way more interesting to watch and it makes it harder maybe it like obscures some of those what's going on under the hoods type stuff it it does lay its like table stakes pretty clearly of the ruling class of this town of paris wherever new zealand maybe um is uh the the bourgeoisie the old uh, old folks club um and the maybe like as we have set up later in the movie the warring faction is the youths uh, the pieces and parts, the symbolism that it gets, uses together, the, the, the fact that like both of them leverage um, vehicles in their own ways to like pursue those own ends are is like probably a deeper discussion point. But uh, it's like I think the fact that it uses those such like really harsh, abrasive editing, very strange music choices at for like very harrowing scenes at times uh, is really goes a long way to building that um, that that overall tone. If there is like one that makes this movie feel like a thing, it came out feeling more like death race 2000 or um or even like uh, fucking um, sh- fa- fan- uh, uh, not mask of the phantasm the one with beef in it phantom of the paradise phantom of the paradise i'm sorry just in that it's got that 70s surrealism to it with this like oh we've actually got multiple genres going we're not just a musical we're not a rocky horror thing we are sort of like going for this cultural critique and this um you know ageism thing and this uh, you know, the youth versus the old and car culture and rural versus, uh, so quote unquote, um, you know, modernized culture. Uh, it's got a lot going on under the hood, as Seth already uh, punned. But it is, uh, I think, even just to watch, it is quite a fun experience. We had, we, we shared the experience with some folks who maybe weren't as into the jarring nature of it, um, but it, it at least got a lot of laughs uh, at seemingly the right times. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that Peter Weir was intending those moments to land as, it, as they did, because it seems like you can't really predict. I think so. I, I I think I think Peter. I, I have. I, I'm not some sort of Australian, uh, you know, new wave expert. But I've wait, kind wait, of, wait, 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 wait. You did refer to yourself as your as the local Australia correspondent. So well, just kind of. That, I've like, like the scene in Glorious Bastards where like the guy has decided to be the second one to speak. Uh, I think Italian, uh, just because he looks more Italian or whatever it is. Like that's. Like I, I have been to Australia once and my older brother was technically born there. So that, that I'm, you know, we're rounding up. I'm the Australia correspondent. <laughs> From nothing, nothing to counts. fully fluent in Australian English. That's exactly well, well, yeah, what we're rounding up to. They yeah. speak English. <laughs> Mary Grady. Uh, I can't do Australian. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I, I think it's, this is like a weird film to try and like summarize because I think that, um, you're you're right in that there's like jarring tonal kind of differences from scene to scene but like at the same time this is a movie that i would not describe this movie as funny i think that like the the stinger in the the climax where he says i can drive that's very funny i laughed quite a bit at that but like the rest of the movie i would say is not funny so much as it is like the most like solidly humorous film of all time like nothing more than except for that one scene nothing more than like a chuckle but like pretty consistent just kind of general like chuckles or like acknowledgement of like oh something happened there you know what i mean just a film full of that and so like i can't i can't like say that i like really loved this film but i think that that is like that is an aspect of the australian new wave that i've like kind of heard of is that films that are like tonally very weird and interesting and what you'd expect for like a film movement that had been revived after I think like 20 years of, of basic, you know, kind of, uh, non-existence. Um, and so there was all these kind of weird experimental, but also kind of tonally interesting films that maybe don't have the kind of, or certainly don't have the kind of like excitement and like pacing that you'd expect from like a 1970s uh like american movie for example but i think there are like there are all sorts of like weird oddities in this film that i think like certainly are intentional um and are you know like doing something whatever the fuck that means from like a a kind of deeper perspective but are also i think like they kind of work like scene to scene in a way like i think that opening is like kind of incredible uh to, to look at i think that like a lot of the editing like the cuts between as you mentioned like the the dialogue and then you know just kind of horrific images of, of accidents and whatnot i think like that does feel like intentional and purposeful in a way it's just like the movie is 
not even necessarily like subtler, but just kind of more flatlined, I guess, but that sounds insulting. Someone like what, what is the word that I'm looking for? Just kind of more frequently, just kind of, uh, uh, middle of the road like it does not have the peaks and valleys yeah. that i would expect for a film that kind of ping pong yeah. so much between tones yeah i think that's i guess when you started talking about it that's where i, I thought you were gonna go is that it's more like even keel than we're painting it maybe to be to you anyway even like, keel is a thrown wonderfully by, that's a great way to this describe is why i produce this, the podcast yes. this is why this beautiful sound you're hearing listener is actually like delivered onto you is because i'm able to put together conversations like this uh, i'm not the one to put my hand though Sure. Uh, well, hey, middle of the road is also uh, extremely appropriate given the, the film we're talking about. But, no, I, I and maybe it was just by virtue of me seeing this with people, but uh, I was I was definitely churning out a, a really solid like chuckle to minute ratio. Um, and most like C- your CPMs were pretty high. It, for sure, it's 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 that one uh, that that you know. Sensible yeah. chuckle. Well, I was going to say it's that it's that one tweet uh, about Taco Bell, which I think about all the time. Um, I think about Taco Bell all the time. I don't think about tweets all the time. Thank or, you for the clarification. Yeah, just very important. Um, I'm just like sometimes I'll look at the Taco Bell menu, see what they've uh, you know churned out this week, and I just shake my head and go, Taco Bell, you've done it again. As <laughs> me in the theaters, man, the cars that ate Paris, you really you you, you continue to just you continue to do it. The 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 you know, anytime the mayor choose, uh, chose rather to, you know, express himself in a certain way or like, like emote or like anybody, any, anytime somebody emoted, it was just like, it was a, a bizarre choice that like is, is funny from a, like, you know, a filmmaking perspective, but it also, as it compounds, you get the sense that like, you know, there's a, a reason that these people are probably acting like this if we're, you know, I mean, with within the scope of the movie where it's just like this town is like feeding off of itself Mm -hmm. in a way that is not normal. And like this by the midway point, it's like, oh, this is like it's a specific choice because they I mean, they don't know how to it's it's like the fucking village or whatever comparable. Oh, yeah. I don't know. But just yeah, like like an ingrown sort of community where it's like we don't we know how to talk. And this sounds normal to us, but it, it does not sound normal to you know, anybody who's any outsiders, um, or anybody watching our movie. Um, but it like, er, and Ernest chuckles also with, uh, any element of, of world building where like the, it's that, that couple minute montage where you learn that like the, the spine of this community's economy is built upon like humble bartering, yeah. uh, literal highway robbery, um, like amateur crash car derbies. Uh, and there was one other thing, um, uh, uh, oh, the fucking um, oh, the, the guy digging graves, who just has a stack oh, yes. of crosses, just like oh, yeah. all these fucking people that we've lured in and murdered them, <laughs> screw drove their legs to oblivion. Um, yeah, so it's it's yeah, like not not maybe not like a, a, a happy Gilmore type uh, of you know uh, sensibility. That, well, that's fresh in my mind, um, but. <laughs> there's there's something working here that again maybe it's maybe it's just watching it with people that really got um got an earnest uh big reaction at least for me yeah yeah i i think that and and that's where i think a lot of the the depth of this film i kind of even hate calling it depth because it's 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 not i think you know kind of pretentious in any manner um but i think that there there is like a lot going on in regard to that Specifically, what you're talking about in regard to the road acting as sort of this uh, kind of, or at least the sole economic, excuse the pun, driver uh, for for this town. There, there is a lot, like I think, pretty interesting going on there that is comparable to some other stuff we've talked about and other films referenced in the film. Um, so, I mean, so we, we uh, uh, listeners, go listen to, go watch and then listen to our episode on Road Games, a film which is about an American, uh, Fuck yeah, uh, you know, a uh, trucker uh in australia driving down uh, a road there and it's a kind of murder mystery thing it's 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 great it's a good movie go check it out very hitchcockian kind of thriller um you know th- that is a film that is similarly about uh kind of the the singularity of roads in certain places geographically and i don't know if you guys have visited areas like this um it it's kind of impossible to explain to people that have not 
been to these specific areas, but there are like some parts of the world where there is like a road, right? Um, Australia is like, not like that in many parts of the country. Uh, if you go to Melbourne, there's just as many roads as like New York City or something. Um, but, you know, you start going through certain parts of Australia and it, it does get, you know, roads and, and paths like that get few and far between. I think like another comparable uh, uh, area in the United States would be Australia, um, Alaska. Ohio. Um, <laughs> but even something like Ohio, like doesn't even quite get to the the point where like, you know, there are like rural like roads and like, you know, uh, uh, paths you can go down. Uh, something like Alaska, like has those kind of like off the main road, but there's like long stretches of Alaska where there's like, this is highway one or whatever uh, yeah. they call it. this. Uh, is are, like are you talking about road. just like, just like the bush, just like where there is one road that doesn't intersect with other roads that take you to two spots? In the yes, in the middle, there's like a road and there's like towns on the road. There's stuff on the road, but it's like, there that road is like the sole like cultural and like economic driver and like signifier in the area right and i think that 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 is what this is like this film is like really getting at right and it's like this road is like representative of the economy in a way that is like heightened to the point of like parody obviously in this film where like yes people are staging car accidents so they can go and like take luggage and like clothes and stuff right um but like, you know, I, I can't help but like compare this to uh, uh, like Western films in the United States specifically, um, which this film does as well. This film like directly references Once Upon a Time in the West. I believe there's like there, the song that plays when like the big Western scene happens is I think literally from Once Upon the Time Once Upon a Time in the West or like a cover of that song, uh, probably a cover for maybe legal reasons. But like that that point is like so directly made that movie is about a railroad being built to act as like the sole method of commerce and tr uh, transportation and communication into this kind of new land. Right. And that like reference is like a very funny kind of wacky things that happen that happens in this film, but it's like also very pointed to how much this town relies upon that and, and how that is kind of mixed in to the metaphor of this town that like, purposely kills people to kind of uh, uh, take from them, right? So I might be the, the noob in the room who's going to make the subtext text, or rather just read the text. Hit it. Um, but Do like it. how I took it was, was two, two operating on two levels. It is like you talk about the road and how this is like the economic lifeblood and like, it is both, it's like a blessing and a curse of this place. I took it as like, given its place in history, I'm, I'm approaching this from an American generational mindset, but like 1970s, you're coming off of like World War II, you're coming off of the Great Depression. There's this generation of kids that is now growing up in like this post-war, post-nuclear world that is radically different than the generation before it. Mm. And to me in America, one big cultural change, literally that shaped the geography in the cities that we live in is roads. And like, there were all of these small podunk towns that used to exist that were completely just like decimated by a new interstate being mm -hmm. built that gives another route for travelers, not going down County road, you know, 69, literally <laughs> route 66. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. Right. And so like, I saw it as this weird cynical take of like, Oh, this government that like, I was literally taking it in like an allegorical level. Like, Oh, the city government is trying to control this force of change mm. for their benefit only for it to suddenly and like violently, you know, yeah. rebel against them and destroy their way of life, literally with these cars demolishing their town. Yeah, which is, I love that reading because it makes it so much more like cynically sweet, I guess, that the old people keep saying the, young, the youth are our future. And then every time, every chance they get to fuck over the youth and to combat the youth and to be uh, besieged by the youth, they take with like sweet sucker. Like they cannot stop getting owned by the, by the teens constantly to the point where like one of them empowered beyond reason 
blows off the minister's head as he's on his way into town just because just just because he's been empowered so and like i i think that read of like direct uh governmental like influence and control like lines i think directly with where i was going with it which is like just the difference the the separation between generations i think like it's, it's part and parcel um i i loved how uh cody i wrote it down because you were talking about like the town is on the edge of like it's just very tense throughout most of the movie and you don't know why until you start to see like the mechanisms by which youth exist in this world you see that there are hooligans you see that they're hoodlums you see that they're in these cars that are souped up in crazy mad max style but you don't understand until maybe halfway through that they're actually like taking these cars that the uh, uh that the bourgeoisie will call them of paris that like the ruling class the the doctors and the um and the politicians don't use the only parts of like the car crashes that they don't use are the cars themselves. They take the bodies, they experiment, they do whatever. It's unclear exactly how they're benefiting from this, but they're doing something that somehow they benefit from. And the kids take the cars and repurpose them. They're taking little bits of the past, little bits of what the old people don't want and refurbishing it into something that like is just a future that the old people can't recognize. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm hams braining on my actual verbiage here, but like the old people aren't going to recognize the version of the future that the kids are actually ushering in where the older generation, the, the institution, the hegemony, the government wants to impose this, what every other city has. They have, um, uh, they have a ruling class, they have police officers, they have traffic attendants. They just want to make this own, this little, which is why I think your uh, comparison to the village is so like apt, is like they want control, they want order, they want society, but they also want to pretend that this idea of it is unique, is new, is like special, should be protected should be like maintained in certain ways um, that uh, will ironically align with exactly how every metropolitan area works um, and fall victim, of course, to the same exact conflict between ruling classes, older and younger. Um, I'm really just spouting at this point. Aaron, was it was your hand up before we started talking? Uh, was there a point you wanted no, to jump good. on with there? I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, so I'll just say that I think that you're you're like correct. And I also think another aspect of it is, is the youth kind of, um, you know, taking bits of yes kind of culture and environment around them and kind of trying to repurpose it but like the 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 future that they build from that also being kind of like inescapable uh from the things that they're like carving it out of right right i, I this is a, a thing that um weir's early films were were all kind of interested in was specifically um australia's past uh and how kind of modern day for the time Australia kind of conceptualized uh, those things. Um, you know, Picnic at Hanging Rock is about this. The Last Wave is about this. Um, this film is about this, right? About Australia's history, but also Australia's history specifically in regard to the Aboriginal people, right? And the, the various kind of uh, really fucked up crimes and whatnot uh, committed against them. I think that like an aspect of the Australian new wave is the relative recency to uh, the the kind of original uh, colonization and, and settling uh, by European powers, right? Where um, I think like 1870s or so was kind of the first ish dates uh, when when Europeans came over uh, to Australia. So just like the and again, we're we're all here in the U.S., so like you know, big of us to talk shit, right? right. But like I think like the relative. <laughs> The relative recency uh, of of uh, you know um, that happening is certainly on the minds of a lot of uh, uh, directors who would work in the Australian New Wave, um, and I think Peter Weir maybe more than anybody else almost. Um, and so there are aspects of that right in the film. Um, I think it's it's most prominent with kind of the the older generation. Right there is the the very racist aboriginal statue yeah. oh, uh, outside of that got that a, like an audible cringe from the audience yeah straight up just just one of them at the big kind of uh, dance thing at the end of the film just straight up uh, dressed in let's say very problematic garb and face paint and whatnot um you know it, it's very direct right like it, it's it's this is not like a because i've already addressed like the tone of this film this is not like a like a poisonous or like hateful movie per se. Mm -hmm. It kind of looks this at these the people as This is the deepest film <laughs> ever made. Come on, Cody. <laughs> Might. But it, it is like, 
kind of attacking in that manner. I don't think it like comes off as that because of the tone of the film. It it's I think like some of the ways it observes like s- smaller town like Australian like cultural norms are like very similar to how a lot of people view that in film for like the Midwest or like the how the Cohen brothers do it for example. Um it's like similar, right? Um but it's it it feels like he's he's kind of in attack mode here even if tonally it that that's not necessarily how it comes off sometimes yeah i i feel like in terms of weird's later career and i've only seen a muted like uh slice of of his work so far i think what i've seen at the trial on has been or through the trial on has been all that i've seen of peter weir's work so far um but uh it feels like there are common threads and i feel like such a dipshit whenever i say it but um like the, the whole concept of like the there's there's a, a dividing line between two halves of like whatever he's trying to do in his movies. There's in the plumber, it's just one room between like the 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 young hippie class and the intellectual. Uh, you know, uh, again, I'm just going to use the term bourgeoisie, even though uh, Jill in that movie isn't really supposed to be super uh, affluent or wealthy. In this movie, it's the young and the old. It's de- re- sort of delayed release, uh, like reveal of where the line is. In um, in witness, it's between you know modernization and tradition. It's between uh, two two ways of life, two sects of of uh, you know the same like overall melting pot culture. Um, and I do like that the further back we seem to go, the more like you said. Uh, it, I don't want to because you mentioned it's not hateful. I think it is like wry. It's 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 like cynical in in a lot. Obviously, yes. very like directly cynical, but not you know like uh, haha uh, uh, directly. Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? It's not like nihilistic in in, in a sense. Um, it does end on a rather downer note. Uh, I just wanted to bring up a thought about the end before we uh, sort of exhumed here, if we can, unless anybody's got any final thoughts, is that the end, the uh, parallel to all of the, like what we've been talking about that's going on underneath the hood of this movie, parallel to that is um, that uh, and, or, uh, uh, Arthur, the main character, the man whose brother has been, uh, been uh, killed in one of the initial car accidents, um, he was sort of the uh, uh, liquid snake of the pair, so to speak. Uh, Cody, you can go off camera for this one. He was a sort of like the liquid snake. He, re- he received all the recessive uh, genes. He's he was the like weaker brother of the two. Um, supposedly, we don't really know their backstory. Uh, but he ends up sort of discover. He's he's even afraid of cars throughout the whole movie. He's unable to drive. He committed manslaughter. Uh, you know, some time before. Um, uh, and and he's he's become terrified to drive. He's uh, racked by anxiety, and he seems to be very closed in his shell. Um, and then toward the end, he finally regains his quote unquote masculinity and is, uh, probably killed for it. Do we assume that he died after the end of that? Because there were traps in and out of the town that, that the mayor was trying to warn him. about. I, so my, my reading of that, because the mayor made that plea to whatever that guy's name was, the, you know, the, the town's construction worker that just like, if, if there are any problems with these hooligans, you know what to do. And he says, right, set the traps. So I took that as the traps had not been set, but the mayor was invoking the traps just oh. to like scare people from going, uh, going away. I don't know if anybody else had a different reading of that. I read that as he's okay. He can drive. He's in the clear. There are no traps. Okay. Other than society. Also, I choose to sure believe he that he's got yeah. cut off at the pass by those cars encircling him before he ever got to set the traps. Right. Oh yeah. He got put on the hood of the car. Yeah. yeah. So the traps were never set, but the mayor was like, hey, traps are up. Nobody leave. My my iron fist continues to rule. Okay. See, I was reading it a little more, like maybe contrary to my own point, a little more like nihilistically, a little more cynically, where it's like, finally, he regains his humanity. Finally, not humanity, his masculinity. He, he like becomes the man he's, he sort of like has, didn't know that he wanted to be. And uh, and finally reclaims his ability to, to drive. And his first instance of that is murdering a man in really... Like the most so comedic good. fashion. It was a very, very good scene because it, it goes on it's for incredible. like a minute 45 of just the car backing up into one of the teenager's cars and just crushing him again and again and again and again and again in the door, championed by uh, his newly adoptive father, the mayor. I mean, it, again, I can't imagine anybody listening to this second, anybody who hasn't seen the movie listening to this, but this movie really can't be like summarized in one scene. And I think that's sort of my overall feeling about it is that it is. Uh, it is incredibly up and down uh, roller coaster of tone and, and like scene to scene, even plotting just would not really line up. If you were to tell me like this happens in one scene, I couldn't tell you what happened before or after or how the movie was going to shake out. Um, again, just babble toward the end of our podcast here. Uh, Aaron, did you have any final thoughts before we enter? Uh, oh, I do have the junk. I can pull it up. 
oh, we are in a non-traditional <laughs> recording setup. Yes, do you have any final thoughts before we pull up the uh, the junk drawer? No, just just play the sound effect. Okay, here's I know the junk you want drawer. To. Your hands hovering over the button. There you go. Beautiful sound effect uh, by both uh, Cody Narverson and former guest Blake Hester uh, contributed sound effects to that. Um, uh, so I, I just want to leave this open to any final uh, junk drawer thoughts. I will jump in with my own first just to get the engine started. Molly Jeffers plays the um, uh, mayor's wife. You may recognize her from a previous movie we covered on this podcast, Mad Max Fury Road. She's a pretty prolific Australian actress. She is one of the Vuvulini, the leaders of the Vuvulini with the with the uh, seeds who are trying to continue um, the uh, green place in the stead of uh, all of like the green place being annihilated. Yeah, she's one of the old ladies. She's the one who says like pop right in the medulla. She's just one of the badass old ladies with a sniper rifle. Uh, I think she ends up getting it in the head, but with a chainsaw or something like that. But, yes. Um, she 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 rocks. Honestly, she's a very good actress. She's uh, referenced in uh, the oral history of Mad Max Fury Road, and she's got just got a ton of fucking great stories about that movie. Um, so Molly Jeffers, R.I.P. to a real one. I think she died last year, year before. Um, that's my uh, junk drawer thought. Thank you so much. Uh, my junk drawer thought. Also, shout out to Bruce Spence, the guy who you know blows the head off of the the minister. Uh, he is. Also in Australian New Wave canon, uh, as the gyrocopter captain from the Road Warrior, uh, he also shows up in Beyond Thunderdome as another Thunderdome. pilot yeah. character. Yep. Uh, and <laughs> then, yeah, right. Like, but not the same one. Yeah. Different names. <laughs> and for any of the high fantasy fans, uh, the Mouth of Sauron from the extended edition of Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, keeping the ball rolling with uh, actors who were in this movie, who were in other things. Um, I was looking up Terry Camilleri, who played uh, the main the main short king Arthur in the cars that ate Paris, and I was like, he didn't strike me while watching the movie that I knew him from anything else. But lo and behold, he portrayed Napoleon in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh shit! So so there's that. Um, just bringing that, not bringing that full circle. Um, other than we're sitting at a table and made our way halfway around. Um, Aaron, please tell us that you have something equally or even more dope to share. Uh, I will say that I have something exactly as dope to share because I was also going to talk about good old Terry. Uh, I will just say Terry. Uh, I think in a film that is like not defined uh, by any one performance. Terry Terry is the one who kind of goes again. I think Terry does an excellent job in this movie playing this kind of, I don't even know, yeah, naive is how I described him earlier, but like kind of impossible to pin down, kind of oaf, just kind of wandering through the circumstances of this film uh, in in kind of being swayed in, in any one direction. I, I think that... that Terry Terry puts in a very good performance uh, in this movie. Uh, the more I think about it, I think he's, he's definitely the star of the show. Truly, in a movie full of performances that are just like carnival barkers again and again and freaks. Uh, like it's too bad it's not the year of the little freak anymore because significant like ratio of, of oh, yeah. people yeah. to little freaks in this movie. Um, he is he, he sort of stand out in that he feels at once like an outsider, but he starts to get molded throughout the movie like he becomes part of the hospital staff and then he becomes the parking attendant and then he becomes, or I guess first he becomes the mayor's adoptive son and then he becomes the parking attendant. He is like the perfect little lens for the viewer that like you're being weirdly ushered into this strange. He's a regular size lens. Uh, not compared to Bruce Spence. Spence. Bruce Spence. I only realized how tall that motherfucker was in the scene where it's revealed that he's blown the head off of the minister. That man must be, must've been like mm -hmm. six foot, Ten or something that was insane. He should have been hooping in Australia yeah. instead of shooping. Uh, okay, that will be our. Uh, in, in the interest of saving time and uh, saving ourselves a little bit of embarrassment from the recording quality of this episode, I will close up the junk drawer. Thank you so much for your for your thoughts and open up the drawer. Uh, whatever. It's good grief. Give me a gif. Uh, I want to know what you guys think should be got as the episode gift with this episode. I already started the junk drawer, so Cody. Do you want, or no, no guest time. Seth, would you oh, tell God. me what you just what what shot right. do you remember? Uh, what shot do I remember? I remember, honestly, I can drive. The cut, <laughs> pretty of him good. Just standing in the <laughs> middle of the street. Uh, that would be my that'd be my vote. Okay, Cody, nice. Uh, I got two invoking the legendary Bruce Spence once again. I I took like 
six different shots down of Bruce Spence just doing wild random shit. Uh, but the one that I uh, ultimately landed on for him that rose to the top of the heap, uh, the scrap heap, ooh, cars, <laughs> junk metal. Um, it's it's late at night, but it's not that late. Uh, Bruce Spence presenting the the mobile of whatever it was, like Jaguar. Yeah, it's um, a Jaguar, yeah. Presenting it because it like rises up in like close proximity to the camera and then Arthur's in the background and then it like cuts to him just for whatever reason, start is starting to like deep throat one of the Jaguars. <laughs> um, very bizarre, but um, I don't know. I also just love whenever he was on screen. That's one. My my second um, and final would be. Uh, it's God. It, it looks so good. It's when Arthur in his little like parking patrolman's uniform. It, it's the the camera kind of cranes up and kind of backs out a little bit. It's while that uh, that banner is in the street. It's visually separates him from the the group of young hooligans who have. Uh, assembled their cars in the road opposite him, and he's like walking towards it, just like straight out of a western. Uh, it looks super cool. So th- really those would be fun. my two picks. Really fun, and a very subtle camera movement on that too. Like it just pans a little bit up to show the the hordes of teens in the back. Uh, most terrifying thing in the movie, teens. Uh, mine are going to be. There are a lot of shots, weirdly, of people just smashing their faces to windows in this, like separated by a small pane of glass. Uh, there, I have two that are just guys with their faces smashed to windows. I think the one that might take it between them is the one when he's in the hospital and there are other patients uh, who are uh, presumably lobotomized, maybe not in the best state uh, who have just smashed their faces up against the window. And all you see is one of their eyes. Is it three of them? Uh, Three people. And one of, one of them just like flicking his eyes back and forth at Arthur through the window. I think that's a really, uh, it was again, one of those like cynically strange, funny little shots. Um, There is a shot of once Arthur starts to realize what's going on in the town and that people are being trapped here intentionally uh for their organs maybe is uh where arthur sees the mirror that they must have been using to blind drivers and it's just slowly cranes to like reveal him in reflection big uh fucking um what is the movie oh uh well sort of what was the wolf one uh, samurai wolf samurai oh, yeah. wolf where uh we see reflections of those characters in the blade that means so much there's a whole lot of uh symbology going on there um and i feel like it was pretty similar i, I leaned to cody and said a couple of times that that's the gift on gifts I'm not going to mention, but the one that I will is uh, from inside the hearse as they're carting George, Arthur's brother, away near the beginning of the movie. That's a really good shot because it gets like a little bit of a strange reflection in some of the panes of glass. Um, And everybody just looks so fucking sad for the last time in the movie. Everybody else either looks, for the rest of the movie, they're either jovial or like terrified. And this is the moment of like morose sadness that they get in the movie uh, at some loss. And it's all performative, obviously, because they just want Arthur to stay around. Um, It sort of came to mean a little bit more as the movie went on. Uh, but I'll let Aaron take it away with his choice or choices for gif, uh, Give Me a Grief. Uh, I would like literally any shot of the big spiky car. I don't mean the, I don't mean the medium spiky car. I mean the, the big chunky spiky car, the big uh, like Mario spike the ball. V- you mean like the VW bug that's been retrofitted with the... yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a really good one. One, one of the guy gets impaled on chunky. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Chunk, yes, that chunk. would be a great one, actually. Yes, do that. Okay, I will put guy getting reamed by a bug. That does that capture it? Thank you. Thank you for your recommendations. Uh, I will. Uh, that has been good. Great. Give me a gif. Um, Cody. Uh, I don't have a partner. Uh, my normal partner. Seth, would you mind introing uh, with me our uh, famous show ending game? I would be honored. All right. On the count of three. Three, two, one. Cody's, Cody's noties. Wow. And hearing it in person, too. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for that scrumptious introduptious. Uh, <laughs> this week's segment is called To Paris with Trilo. Uh, and because this week we did... Um, what we used to do back in the stone age of this podcast, where we would watch the movie and then record, uh, almost immediately afterward, uh, we did that this time. So there was kind of a, a firm limit to how much research I wanted to do before you know, coming into this, especially in a, a post noties era. Um, we didn't always do that. Um, so I, I what I did was I, I decided to take an angle that I was pretty sure would not be the approach of the film. It got close on a couple occasions, um, but it was not literalized. Uh, in this case, that angle is Movies wherein inanimate objects kill and or consume people. Uh, so what I've done is I've compiled uh, examples 
of this uh, subgenre, and I will be uh, briefly, I almost said briefly, Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> um, I will uh, briefly describe uh, each movie, and then it will be y'all's task to guess what the human body count is oh, God. Uh, of each movie. Uh, I hope so- I don't beef it. Cha-ching! Um, that's money going into Jason's pocket for mentioning beef. Uh, for the order, um, I'll just kind of shoot from the hip. This is already a weird episode logistically, <laughs> and I don't feel like introducing the spinner app into all this. Um, I'll try to keep it relatively, even though uh, you'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer, yada, yada, yada. The person with the most points at the end will win. Uh, will win. Trivia Mafia rules apply. Use your noodles, not your Googles. Don't fucking cheat. He'll watch us if we do it. Uh, I see you when you're sleeping. I know when you're awake. Uh, with that, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump in. Our first movie, uh, 2010's Rubber. Maybe oh you've boy. heard of it. Uh, description. A group of people gather in the California desert to watch a, a scare quotes film set in the late 1990s featuring a sentient homicidal car tire named Robert. Uh, the assembled crowd of onlookers watch as Robert becomes obsessed with a beautiful and mysterious woman and goes on a rampage through a desert town. Uh, we'll start with uh, Aaron. Aaron, what is your estimation for the human body count in 2010's Rubber? Oh, I wish I had uh, seen this movie now. Um, I remember liking it. 12. All right, Aaron is going with 12. I'm locking it in. Uh, we'll go to, to Jason next. What is your guess arena? Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I probably did watch this in 2010. Um, I'm going to say, I seem to be seem to remember it being more violent than I thought it was going to be. 41. Jason is going with 41, and Seth is going to go with the following guess. Put me in at 20. Mm. Seth is going for 20. Brilliant. Uh, the actual human body count in this film, uh, verified by at least one or two <laughs> sources on the internet, uh, is 32. So 32, human body count. Jason is just a smidge closer. Uh, no Price is Right rules. That is not how the noties operate. You can take that to the bank. Um, no, you can't because your prize money is not legal tender. We're going to move on to uh, previous episode, 1983's Christine. Uh, for those unawares, geeky student Arnie Cunningham falls for Christine, a rusty 1958 Plymouth Fury, and becomes obsessed with restoring the classic automobile to her former glory. Uh, as the car changes, so does Arnie, whose newfound confidence turns to arrogance behind the wheel of his exotic beauty. This description. Jeez, uh, Arnie's <laughs> girlfriend Lee and best friend Dennis reach out to him only to be met by a, a capital F Fury like no other. I don't know why it was capitalized. Hmm. Uh, I'm not going to ask any further questions on that. Uh, we'll go We'll go oppo order. Uh, Seth, we'll start with you. What is your guess for the human body count of uh, Stephen King's Christine? Really quick question. Are these body counts just all the humans who die or all the humans that get killed by the object? All of the humans that get killed, I believe within the scope of like, we are like seeing them Got in, it. In, in some sense on okay. screen. Uh, it's, it's the, this is like the late seventies, right? There probably weren't that many. 81, did you say? 83. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to say eight. All right, Seth is going with it. Uh, we'll go to Jason next. Uh, how many people did Christine kill in Christine? Uh, I'm going to go with 14. Jason's going with 14. Uh, a fun inverse of his mm-hmm. last guess, 41. Sensing a bit of a pattern. Uh, Aaron, what is your guess for this one? I, uh, I So I'm going to assume that the whatever that the high schooler is that builds Christine. I think he dies at the end of that. I'm going to assume that's counted. Mm-hmm. I still think it's less than eight. I think it's like four or five. I'm going to go, I'm going to go seven, which is a shit move. Sorry, but yeah. Aaron is, uh, is going with seven. The human body count. But I think it's 1983's like Christine is seven. Uh-huh. Uh, is David Fincher's seven. Uh, so Seth was good. I didn't so go five. Close. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hey, it, it, uh, it happens. Uh, we're chugging right along. I got three more of these still very much anybody's game. Uh, as we pivot to, uh, again, our third one, also 1983, a fun year for, uh, inanimate objects, killing people on screen. Uh, the lift is the name of this one. Uh, you might be asking, what is the lift about? And I say, hold your horses. I'm getting to it. A lift technician 
finds himself drawn into a web of mystery and peril as he investigates the perplexing, deadly accidents occurring in the elevators of a new office building. Um, we'll go Jason first this time. Jason, uh, how many human bodies were uh, destroyed, killed in the lift? I'm just trying to find new ways to ask it this question. Doesn't, it doesn't take much to be perplexed. And I'm quoting uh, Cody directly in the perplexed word. Um, I'm, I'm going to say uh, 12 people died. Jason is going with 12. Uh, I'll do Aaron next. Aaron, what is your guess for 1983's The Lift? I feel like all you need is one elevator full of people. And then that already... I'm going to go 18. Aaron is going with 18. And back to Seth, uh, what is your human body count estimate? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the weenie thing and I'm going to shoot the gap. So I'll call it 15. Seth is rolling with 15. Uh, 1983's The Lift, which I've not seen um, and cannot verify uh, the quality of these kills. There's only four of them. Uh, so The, the Lift uh, seems like, I mean, that's to your point, Aaron, it sounds like it wasn't maximized. Yeah, that's, um, I wouldn't even investigate that. I'd be like, damn, that's a bummer. Four people died in The Lift. Four, four maybe people we just over need the to span call Hertz of, and Avis. Yeah, four people over the span of an entire movie. There's no statistically significant evidence to prove that that elevator is killing people. <laughs> Uh, those are all mysterious accidents. Sorry, Hertz and Avis is the car companies. Who is the who is the elevator company? Everybody Otis. know what I'm talking about? Otis. Otis. Yeah, Otis Elevator. And isn't there one other one? Good question. Like oh, oh, I've got it in my notes here. Uh, Jonathan Lift is, uh, is the <laughs> okay. other uh, <laughs> right. proprietor of these. Um, but hey, you know what? Uh, what isn't so mysterious is uh, is the leaderboard for this game. Segways. Uh, Jason is currently in the lead with two points to Aaron's one to Seth's beautiful donut. Um, again, still very much anybody's game. We've got two more here. Uh, next up, 1991's The Refrigerator. Uh, I wonder what this movie is going to be about. Uh, uh, so description, a couple move into a bad apartment in a bad neighborhood in New York. Jeez, letterboxed. Uh, the apartment contains a refrigerator, huh? Uh, which is the only thing they like in the place. However, they slowly discover that the refrigerator is a monster which kills people in gruesome ways and then sends them to hell. Uh, I want to watch this immediately. The refrigerator is always uh, is already rather gaining mind control over the husband. What will happen? The description ends with a question. My question to you all. Mm, let's see, what ways can I futz with this order? We'll go back to Aaron. Uh, Aaron, what, uh, what's the human body count in, in the refrigerator? I'm going to go four again. Aaron is going with four. Uh, we'll go to Seth now. Seth, your guess for the refrigerator's body count. Seven. Seth is going with seven. And Jason, over to you. What do you think? I'm gonna go, and it's weenie, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go uh, five because I think if it's in an apartment, it's just like, oh, it kills the repairman, and it probably kills one or two visitors, and it probably kills the husband as well. Mm. I'm assuming. Yeah, you assume, and do you assume correctly? We'll find out in a couple seconds. The human body count for 1991's The Refrigerator is evidently 12. 12 Whoa. people got uh Now that's the kind of work that elevator should have been putting in. You know what that's I mean? That's what I'm saying. Those for numbers real? need to be fucking swapped. I'm telling you, the refrigerator's pulling more than their fair share of the weight. Uh, but Seth is on the board. Um, we, got a, we, got a, we got a tight one, folks. Uh, everybody's on the board. Aaron and Seth tied up at one. Uh, Jason is uh, slightly ahead of them with two. So uh, if Jason gets this next one, he's the wiener of the game. If uh, Aaron or Seth get winner, sorry, uh, verbal typo. Uh, if Aaron and Seth uh, or Seth rather, or, and or, I don't know, their ties can happen. Um, if either of them get the point, then they will tie Jason. We will head into the fifth and final question uh, or film rather for this particular subgenre. Uh, sub Not one I've seen but maybe one of the more famous uh, examples of this type of movie, 1986's Maximum Overdrive. Uh, when a comet passes close to the Earth, machines all over the world come alive and go on homicidal rampages. A group of people at a desolate truck stop are held, hosti uh, are held hostage by a gang of homicidal 18-wheelers. A really homicidal description. The frightened people set out to defeat the killer machines, dot, 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 or be killed by them. So um, let's see. For this one, I'm just going to go back to uh, to the order that we started with. So Aaron first. Aaron, how many people uh, died? Didn't in I just give it first? Didn't I just go first? You tough. 
Hmm. <laughs> um, this is what hey, this is what you get for not being here in person. So we can maybe do there's the, like the a montage a of di- of different machines killing people. Uh, you know, I'm gonna go low. I'm yeah. I'm think. I'm gonna assume there's not a montage of people dying horribly to machines. I'm gonna say eleven. Aaron is going with eleven uh, over to Jason. Maximum overdrive. Body count. Go. I don't know how you don't make a movie like that. How you make a movie like this and not show a montage of people. It's like even Transformers does this. Like a sprite machine budget. turns into an the answer is Transformers has a I'm getting very close. It was Mountain Thank Dew. You. I apologize uh, to Sprite Incorporated. Uh, uh, I'm gonna say that like 55 people die in this movie. All right, 55. Uh, funnily enough, 55, that is uh, eerily similar to your guest last round, which was five. Might be a pattern developing here. Mm. Something to keep an eye out for. Uh, but Seth, our last guest of the game, Maximum Overdrive Body Count. I will stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, I agree that there must have been a montage, but I also think there probably were budget constraints. Uh, I'm going to call it a healthy 33. Okay. 33. Locking it in and i'm doing some quick mental math uh so all is and i'm not i'm not indicating anything on my notepad so nobody here in person can kind of get ahead of this before i make through make it make my way downtown through my spiel here just to get ahead of it thank you uh to those who participated to paris with try love to you too the a human body count in 1986's maximum overdrive is evidently 43. Seth is slightly closer. Fuck! Uh, Jason popped (laughs) off a a preeminent pop-off. You you hate to see it. Uh, So Seth and Jason tied for the lead with two. Um, Aaron, a a very uh, sporting engagement from him throughout this endeavor. Uh, One point on the board for him. Uh, (laughs) He he gave a nice meme face. Uh, Everybody has a lot to be proud of, um, but especially the two fellas who won. So the shared pop-off platform is yours. Last time I... The, I, I won the last game, and I started it with, uh, with the pop-off platform with my best Australian accent. So, uh, it, good playing with you, mate. Uh, it, it's been it's been a joy. It's been real. T- uh, what are they called? What, what are they used for? Positive? Shrimp t- on the Barbie. T- 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 uh, it's been shrimp on the Barbie. Uh, since, no, no, no. Since please, Friday. please, no, no. Need to excuse me. Sorry, interrupting your pop-off. They don't say shrimp on the Barbie. This is a common misconception from a no, fucking they say shrimp steakhouse. On the no, they fucking oh, don't because no. they say prawns, not shrimp. Literally so the most famous the meme Sh- phrase Shrimp about on the Australia. prawns doesn't make any fucking sense. Prawn. Okay. Very good, Cody. Very uh, good. I got mine. Seth, pop off. Sorry. So, there's that one shot in the movie where there's the, the cars on the hill overlooking Paris. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think of the Battle of Okahizama where Nobunaga Oda used a cavalry charge on a hill to overtake uh, his, uh, not fiefdom, I I don't know what you go, province, province. Uh, And that really set the course for what became modern Japan. So shout out to Nobunaga Oda. To my man, Nobunaga Oda. Uh, He just dedicated his win to one of, is that the romance of the three? No, that was. No, no, that's China. Yeah. This is uh, the Sengoku Warlord, the Demon Nobunaga. Demon Nobunaga Oda. Uh, thank you so much to him for all of his tireless efforts in shaping the uh, present of Japan. Uh, and thank you very much, listener, for... Oh, sorry. Thank you very much, Cody, for ending our episodes. As always, on a wonderful lighthearted note about no, Nobunaga Oda. Maybe the first time we've referenced that motherfucker on this podcast. Um, but I pr- appreciate you, too, listener, for listening to our podcast. Uh, check us out at Trial of Podcast. Check out the Trial on at Trial on Cinema and at trialon.org where you can find tickets to movies like this one. Uh, the Peter Weir series is currently going on in September at the Trilon. Um, we'll cover a couple more of those movies before it's over, but uh, check out the Trilon's website for other cool stuff happening this year. We just got a preview of um, the end of the year and the beginning of next uh, in terms of what they're going to be showing, and it's a doozy as it always is. Check it out at Trilon.org. Check us out at Trilon Podcast. Find me, Jason, at Nintendoofus on Twitter for now, and also I'm, I'm on, also on Blue Sky. A friend sent me an invite, so... Hey, check us all out there, I guess. Yeah, I forgot to... I, the, I made a note of it because Aaron mentioned Blue Sky up top and because Aaron's not on Twitter anymore, I didn't get a chance to tell you. I'm on Blue Sky now, too. So everybody here is on Blue Sky. Woo! That's great. Uh, that's that's something. Uh, so you can... I'm Cody. I've, I've been Cody Narvison. That's the, the guy. Uh, I'm still on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. And then how the fuck do you say 
I'm Cody Narvison. I don't know. It's my name's in the show notes. You can get the spelling, copy and paste it. It'll it'll be easier than you think. Have at it. I, I uh, noticed I joined Blue Sky first. Cody has not followed me back yet, despite following him earlier today on the application. Oh, I, I, it's, I don't know. I've had a busy day. I'll, I'll find you. Okay. Anyway, you can find me. Uh, I follow back, at least me. I follow back uh, RB Please on Blue Sky. Uh, and I didn't say it, but thank you so much, Seth, for uh, one, hosting us uh, here for this recording in person, and two, for being back on the episode. Of course, uh, just for the record, I did follow Aaron back on Blue Sky. So I followed him first. He didn't even follow me first. Well, I didn't. I, I was too I'm humble. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. No, I totally. Two did. out of the three of us here first and then Seth. have followed yes. uh, RB Please back. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can also find me <laughs> at Senzarati. I've I've done a good job of locking this down. Uh-huh. So like, whatever your preferred social platform is, I'm there. Except for OnlyFans, I was not able to get at Senzarati. Fuck. On that's why that's fifteen dollars a month if we go to the wrong fucking person. Ah yes. These old podcasters are a real problem, aren't they? Um, I'll give two readings of this last quote. Jason, you decide which one you want to put in. Ah, yes. These old pedestrians are a real problem, aren't they? Uh, Alternate take.